The following is a conversation with Professor Bernie Ankeny. He is the Dean of the School of Communications at Point Park University. We sat down to discuss his doctorate thesis, cultural catalysis, as well as political communication, social media, leadership, and more. This is the Not Just Politics podcast. To find us on social media, click through the links in the description. Enjoy. So when you were uh, earning your doctorate at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, your thesis was cultural catalysis. Can you explain what that is for the people that might not know? Yeah. um, When I was at North Carolina Chapel Hill, uh, there was a concept called social capital that was getting a lot of attention. And it's the idea, uh, there was a book that was published called Bowling Alone, that if you look at the number of people who are bowling in the United States, people still bowl, but there aren't as many bowling communities and bowling teams that they were. So a book was written called Bowling Alone, that people are still bowling, but they're doing it by themselves. They're not doing it with their friends and neighbors and family. And it got a lot of attention. Uh, And my dissertation was to challenge that theory because I agree that communities have changed over the past 50 years. And I also agree that people are becoming more isolated. But what I attribute the problem to is this. It's not that people want to bowl by themselves. It's that community communication technologies have isolated uh, us. We can watch television, cable, satellite, streaming in our basement and not interact with anybody. Uh, We can use our cell phone to stay in touch with people from our hometown. Now the problem with that is this, I've walked by uh, kids on Point Park's campus, a group of four or five kids who maybe live in the dorm together and they're all on their phones. While they're physically located together, they are not communicating. Uh, And I think something is lost when we don't communicate with our neighbors. Uh, Both of you may remember growing up where you would go to your friend's house Mm -hmm. and you would talk to neighbors on the back porch. Yeah. In 2022, that doesn't happen. And what my dissertation and later book that was published argued was that we are allowing communication technologies to isolate ourselves and things like playing little league volunteering for habitat for humanity going to high school sports interacting with neighbors is all being lost because people are in their houses playing video games i have two boys and they will spend a day playing video games well when you're playing video games with your brother what are you not doing any community stuff (laughs) yeah that's true so um television we can watch streaming and um we can watch um satellite and cable and never have to go out and i think the thing that kind of demonstrated to me that the theory still holds in 2022 because i worked on it 22 years ago is this how many times do both of you text someone in the next room over or text your roommate 
who's five feet away? I actually don't that often, but my roommates do. <laughs> but they they do, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like, why are you texting me when you could talk? Right. And uh, I think communication technologies uh, have really changed society, and most of the effects, I think, are negative. That, that was going to be my next question, I guess, because I think for me personally, <clears throat> I, I agree largely with that. And the, the, I guess the part where I, it's not disagreeing, but I'm just wondering, you know, for, for me, I had cousins that lived in Maryland, that lived in Atlanta, and video games were actually my way to connect with them because I couldn't see them in person. So I guess, like, like I said, do you see that as, do you see this as like an entirely bad thing or is there a space where video games, I guess in particular, could actually be a community for somebody? I think it's nuanced. Of course. Uh, I think you need to look at it, and there is no question there are some positive benefits of communication technology. Uh, one of them being that you can use your cell phone to stay in touch with family members and friends in other cities and states and countries cheaply. You can play video games with them as well. The question I would throw out is this, and that is what's being lost though when you're doing that, if you do it too much? Uh, and I'll often talk about your parents when they went to college. If you made a phone call 1985, 1990, this was a time where landlines, and if you called your parents at college, it cost 25 or 50 cents a minute. So you might call your parents once a month, maybe twice a month. And what a lack of technology in the 1980s and early 1990s meant, if you went to college, you got to know your roommate. You mm -hmm. got to know the kids on your floor. You got involved in community groups. You might read the local newspaper. Um, you might uh, watch the local TV news because you couldn't afford to stay in touch with people back home. And because of that, you really immersed yourself in that community. Uh, I think in 2022, with technology, you can communicate with people all over the world. But there is a trade-off because you only have so many hours in the day. And how many of those hours are being spent with people who are physically located right next to you? And the example I gave a little bit ago, count the number of times you see people on campus walking in a group all on their cell phones. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's great that this group is friends and it's great they walk to class together. It might be nice if they talked a little bit. Yeah, I, I'm, I think everybody's guilty of that to an extent. I've definitely been guilty of that. Now, as far as the, um, the actual theory, has there been, did you get any pushback for that or is, has it been widely accepted or? I think some people accept it. Some people feel that communication patterns have changed for other factors. Mm -hmm. And I agree with that. I just think communication factors are key because um, we have so many options that didn't exist 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 60 years ago. Uh, if you're a political science researcher, you probably attribute it to things like work schedule. Both parents are working now. 
uh, we're driving farther to work. So there's no question there are other factors. Uh, I think the communication researchers who have read my book will say that it was a good theory, it was a good first start, and that I raised uh, some good questions that are worth uh, further analysis. And is there any other name that people might know this concept by? If you're a political science, um, it probably would use the social capital theory. That's okay. more accepted in political science, maybe sociology. Uh, my theory is limited to communication. And my theory was based on correlations. And I don't want to turn this into a statistical lecture because that's right. not very uh, interesting. But the way the survey data were set up, I couldn't go as far statistically as I would like with it. Mm -hmm. So we had to look at correlations. And there are upper level statistics that are more powerful, like regression. Um, and we couldn't do that. So uh, it's unfortunate. But the survey data that uh, I used was the general social survey. And it just didn't ask all the media use and communication questions that would have allowed me to make a stronger argument and to use better statistics. Right. So <clears throat> while you were at uh, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, you actually minored in political communication. So what do you think in particular that cultural catalysis has done to our politics? You know, our ability to communicate with each other I think has severely declined. Yeah, I chose the word catalysis uh, purposefully because what it means is the is breakdown. And mm -hmm. There's a scientific meaning of it, but it's a breakdown. And what I was trying to get across is there's a cultural breakdown happening because of how we communicate and the technology that we use. Well, if you apply it to political science, uh, it used to be if you were a candidate for office, you would go door to door and you would knock and you would talk to people and you would hold campaign rallies uh, and you would shake hands and you would uh, reach out to different groups in the community to say, I'm running for Congress. This is why I want you to elect me or I'm running for mayor. This is why uh, you want to elect me and perhaps I look at that time too altruistically mm -hmm. uh, but today there's an awful lot of division there's not as much going to neighborhoods saying this is why I want to be your mayor instead there are digital ad campaigns there's a lot of negative ads that are mailed to people Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of using communication technology to attack the person instead of saying, this is why I want your vote. This is why I want to be your mayor. This is how I feel our community could be made better, bringing everybody. Uh, so there has been a hardening um, right, left, uh, just um, there's been a hardening of positions and a lot of people in Congress will say that the days of going to lunch with people you disagree with or co-sponsoring legislation 
doesn't happen as much. And I do think communication technologies have played a role in making our political discourse worse. I would I would agree. Now, do you think that so in, in a way, like you're mentioning at the local level, the mayor, it's become less about community service and it's more about the individual. Like, I am not going to go out to tell you this is why I want to make our community better for our vote. It's just let me attack my candidate to get votes because whether it's about power or money, I'm sure there's a variety of reasons. Yeah, and I think that's unfortunate. I think the day of, I grew up in western Pennsylvania, a small town called Ligonier, and Mm -hmm. I think if you ran for mayor of Ligonier, you would talk about how am I going to make schools better and how can I bring new businesses and how do I create part-time jobs and how do we make our sports teams better. Uh, I wish we would focus on things like schools, like jobs, things that everybody can agree about. One of the great things, and having had both of you in class, one of the great things is you get to know me and my family. Mm -hmm. And my son, Luke, is a wrestler. And I have gotten to know people I never interacted with because of his wrestling club and because of him wrestling junior high and high school. And I wish communities would focus more on that because when you look at high school football games, you have every part of the community there. Yeah. High school basketball games, and they're shaking each other's hands, and they're talking, and they're getting to know each other. And I wish we focused in 2022 on things like schools that people agree with instead of what we disagree with. Yeah, I think I've always, not always, but I think recently I've held the belief that deep down everybody wants the same stuff. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants better schools. Everyone wants everyone wants less crime. Everybody wants more jobs, a better economy. But there is a disagreement about how we get there. And that's what we choose to focus on instead of focusing on the fact that we all kind of want the same stuff. It would be nice if more time was spent on things we agreed with instead of on what we disagreed with. And then I, I guess, well, like you were focusing on, you know, so do you think then, I, I think I... I have this belief, but I'm curious if you do, that the local level is more important than the national level with our politics. Uh, I do think that. I think that having the right political leader uh, who can really talk to people in the community, advocate for change, and bring people together, you're going to interact with your mayor. If you're from Mm -hmm. western Pennsylvania, especially if you're from a small Uh, mid-sized town you're going to know who your mayor is and you're going to interact with that person Mm -hmm. you'll probably find a project to work on when you start thinking about well who's going to represent me in congress who's my senator who's my president those are people you don't interact with yeah so um i do think local uh localism uh is more important and i think having the right people in those roles, as you said, is just critical. Yeah, I would agree. I think it's part of the situation of, like, at the end of the day, the stuff that goes on in Texas, as much as we might not like it, doesn't really affect us all that much, you know. But the stuff that happens in Pittsburgh, that's, that's right on our at our front door. Like, that's the stuff that we would feel the effects of every day. And I, I definitely would like to see a shift, an emphasis on the local level because i do think that's where the stuff gets done absolutely i i couldn't agree more 
So I, I guess we sort of touched on it, but um, I guess if you have any other thoughts, like, you know, what are the, um, we sort of touched on social media a little bit. Mm-hmm. How do we weigh all of the effects of social media? And since we were on the political communication topic, I'd like to stay on that. You know, how do we weigh the positive and negative effects of social media? Um, and, you know, how how do we figure out you know uh, i guess because in, in in my eyes that's where most of the toxicity is mm-hmm. so how do we you know is i wonder is there a solution to that do you have any ideas yeah a, a couple thoughts uh the first one is when you're thinking of that local community and um i use myself as examples when i talk about how you interact with people I remember one day being so frustrated uh, when I was living in Alabama that the person in front of me was driving like 15 miles under the speed limit. <laughs> and I, I'm thinking to myself, I want to beep, you know, I'm irritated, I'm in a hurry. But I realized the person in front of me was a friend of mine. Ah. And you are not going to be beeping your horn, showing road rage to someone you know and interact with. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that if you're looking at your hometown, there's probably a neighbor who would bring you lemonade in the summer and bring you cake and pie and invite you yeah. to the porch. Well, if that person's driving in front of you, boy, you're gonna behave differently than someone you've never met on social media. Yeah, And an awful lot of the negativity that I'll see on social media is just because that it is very easy to insult someone you don't have a relationship with. Yeah. It is very easy to make fun of that person for anything, age, you know, inappropriate stuff, body image, uh, education. Uh, but when you have a relationship, it's different. Social media in 2022 allows you to say things that you would never, ever say in school, at a job, with a group of friends. Yeah. And I think looking forward, we need to, as communication scholars, really take a look at social media. And here's why. For a long, long time, uh, as we discussed in Media and Society, the newspaper was the way you brought that community together. Everybody would read a newspaper, grandparents, parents, kids, and it's how you followed local news. It's how you knew what was happening. Well, the newspaper industry is struggling. Mm -hmm. Uh, Young people aren't reading it. Even parents aren't reading it. Really, the last group that's reading a newspaper is the grandparent uh, demographic. How are people being informed in 2022? It's social media. Yeah. So I think we need to study the effects of social media, and I think we need to study it on different things. It might be politics. It might be high school sports. It might be a community project. There's a lot of research that needs to be carried out. I also think you need to look at social media platform independently. Mm -hmm. Um, My boys spend a ton of time on TikTok. Yeah, TikTok will get you. So TikTok, how does that create media effects? Um, Twitter, they spend less time on. It has a different demographic. I think it's a little older. 
uh, more maybe parents, uh, more, maybe more grandparents, but young people use it just differently. Uh, so I think it's more of a broader social media platform. So mm-hmm. I think you study different issues and how they're portrayed and the content that's out there on Twitter. I think you Snapchat, again, different demographics because there are so many social media platforms in 2022. I really think you need to look at them independently. I think you need to look at who the audience for them is and how they use it. Yeah, I would definitely say that um, Snapchat has probably I would I would guess Snapchat as a younger demographic TikTok as a younger demographic Twitter and Instagram are probably more college students people in their like 30s to 40s maybe a little bit older but um yeah and I I don't even touch TikTok I I don't even go on there and I think Snapchat is this might be totally off but I feel like Snapchat is the least like malignant for lack of a better term like all you're really doing on on, like i don't get news from snapchat Mm -hmm. snapchat has the recommended page but it's all content that i don't want to see like i don't even know if they collect data on what you want to look at Mm -hmm. i know that other companies do i don't know if snapchat does because there's never anything on the snapchat recommended page that i actually want to watch like nothing but um twitter is a twitter is a monster sometimes (laughs) Yeah, and I don't have a Twitter page. I had one for a few years, and I probably should create one as dean of the School of Communication. Yeah. When I had my personal Twitter page, I didn't like it because there was that negativity we talked about before where you – maybe I send out a tweet. I want to congratulate my friend John on being named Employee of the Month, and then Mm -hmm. someone – uh, would tweet, I hate John. He's a jerk. I don't like this company. <laughs> yeah. And you looked at the responses and the negativity, and that's really not how I want to spend my downtime. So yeah. I got rid of my Twitter page, and I have to admit I haven't missed it in the least. Uh, I will probably create one for Dean of the School of Communication to post updates because it's an exciting time and we're doing some really neat things. Uh, but I don't miss uh, – it's been two years, three years, and I just don't miss the interactions because I didn't view them as mo- – they were more negative than positive. Yeah. And I guess while we're on the topic of Twitter, um, do you have any thoughts about how we handle all of the fake accounts? Yeah, it, it's interesting. I've been following uh, Elon Musk's purchase. Yeah, that's one of the uh, issues. How many accounts are actually bots? Uh, how many accounts are creating misinformation? And I think that's important to study. And I don't know what Twitter officials were doing prior, but Elon Musk seems very, very concerned about it. Yeah, um, I think it needs to be addressed. Uh, but with technology in 2022, it's fairly easy to create a bot. Yeah. Uh, and it's fairly easy to really put a lot of misinformation out there quickly. Yeah. I mean, in 2020, I might have the details slightly wrong, but I remember there was 
like a, a Black Lives Matter protest that was happening in Texas. And then somebody organized a like a Proud Boys rally right across the street. And when Twitter dug into the information, the tweet that scheduled the Proud Boys rally was fake. It wasn't even a real person. It was just someone that was running a bot account that had set that up. And there was this whole big thing about it. It is easy to create fake accounts to magnify and make it appear as if 50, 100, 500 people agree with your perspective. Uh, and in the case of Proud Boys, it's a very small uh, number, fortunately, who agree with that perspective. So um, people like when they see, oh, look, 14 people, 100 people, 500 people like this tweet or, yeah. you know, shared this tweet because my opinion matters and others agree, but it's very, very easy for a hate group to make it seem as if this perspective is more common than it actually is. Yeah, and I guess um, staying on the topic of misinformation, how much... Or what what duties do you think we need to give to government, to these tech companies, and to the individual in handling misinformation? You know, do we regulate it with the government, or is this a situation where the individual needs to get a better nose for bullshit <laughs> pardon my swearing but like that was one thing bill maher talked about he said you know people need a better bullshit detector when they're looking at these things on social media yeah i tend to be a marketplace of ideas guy i tend to believe in a very expansive first amendment just because i mm -hmm. disagree with someone i don't think someone else shouldn't be allowed to tweet it or put a video on youtube uh, I get the concept of misinformation, but I think the government will struggle immensely if it tries to regulate misinformation. I just don't think that's a role the government is suited to play very well. And yeah. what might be viewed as misinformation today might be widely accepted uh, there were, in the 1400s and 1500s, scientific theories like the Earth is the center of the universe, which is not true. Mm -hmm. But at the time, if you believed that, you got into enormous trouble with the church and with the state, and uh, that view was viewed as unacceptable. Um, there are when I worked as a journalist, it was health, science, and technology. And there were theories that had very little acceptance initially, but over time, as people put it out there and argued and other, create, carried out studies, other people's position modified, and that position became far more widely accepted. So uh, I think the government would have, have an horrible time it would be chaos if you try to regulate what should be on youtube what should be on facebook what should be on twitter because when i see what's flagged sometimes it makes me shake my head because i will see things flagged that are factually accurate 
and yeah. uh, you'll have like uh, fact fact check warnings and things like that. Yeah. And uh, it just has not worked well. And you also get into the amount of information out there. Look at how many videos there are. Look at how many tweets there are. Look at how much content there's on Snapchat. How in the world are you legitimately going to be able to go out and decide what's accurate, what's not? So I really wish the government would stay out of the issue. Tech companies, I tend to view consistent with the marketplace of idea, there's certain speech that the marketplace of idea moves outside the First Amendment. As yeah. an example, I have no uh, I have no First Amendment rights to threaten either of you two. I'm yeah. I'll punch you both in the face. Well, if I start threatening you, my speech can lead to criminal consequences. But I think you need to be very, very careful with what's outside the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. False advertising, true threats of violence. Uh, there's a concept called the um, Brandenburg incitement criteria. So I think the speech that is unprotected by the First Amendment uh, that government or tech companies want to look at, I don't see how the government can do it consistent with the First Amendment. If you look at tech companies and user agreements, well, they have a little more ability to regulate speech because you're not, you don't have a First Amendment right to have a Twitter account or right. a Facebook account. So they have a little more, but the problem I see is when you start regulating that speech, I think uh, that you're going to set yourself up for allegations of bias. Absolutely. I, I agree with all of that. I think that well, and that was the one thing that really bothered me whenever they decided to kick Trump off of all the social media platforms. My big problem was that these are not our elected officials. Mark Zuckerberg was not elected by anybody. And he had in that moment placed himself above the sitting president of the United States. It doesn't matter. I don't like Trump. It, so it doesn't matter. But that doesn't matter because... They're going to lean whichever way the money is. So tomorrow, if the money is in the right way and Joe Biden says something that they don't like, all of a sudden Joe Biden's off Twitter. And then all the people on Twitter that were happy about Trump gone are like, what the heck? Why is Biden gone now? Yeah, I think you once you start once tech companies start regulating speech with Twitter, with Twitter, one of Elon Musk's arguments uh, has been that if he takes over the company, he's going to move back to a marketplace of ideas. Yeah. That people can be on Twitter. There will be areas like true threats of violence um, that will be outside of the First Amendment, but they are going to use a marketplace of ideas. And that if someone wants to tweet a true threat, well, then that person faces legal consequences. Of course. And I have always supported a very expansive First Amendment. I think you have the right to say dumb things. Mm -hmm. I think you have the right to say things that I disagree with. And when I go to YouTube as a former health science journalist, there were things about COVID on YouTube that I disagreed with. There were things about Facebook, but that's my opinion 
and the idea that someone like me should be able to regulate what other people put on social media platforms uh, just I view as very counterproductive. And then I, So I, I guess then the argument that I hear a lot, and I think it's a valid argument, I just don't know the answer, is that the, the obvious one I hear a lot is like, okay, where do we draw the line? Especially with COVID, you know, I support the marketplace of ideas concept. You know, I have two parents that work in healthcare mm -hmm. um, that both saw how bad COVID was. So right off the bat, you know, I was taking it seriously. And I, I saw people, I had friends that were even, you know, not denying it, but severely downplaying it. And I didn't want to tell them that they couldn't be saying what they were saying but i guess how do you how do we toe that line i guess about i think that's the problem with misinformation is that one one side of an argument could view it as misinformation and the other side could not it's like having a different opinion is yesterday mm -hmm. today it's bringing two completely different sets of facts to the table so how do we navigate that yeah i I think it goes back to Bill Maher has argued that people should be responsible, that when they read Twitter yeah. uh, uh, posts and when they go to YouTube, there's a responsibility by every person to take a look and to watch it and to think about it and to make decisions. And there, with a marketplace of uh, ideas approach, there will be a lot of unfortunate content out there no question about mm -hmm. that uh there will be things out there that will be wrong um but i think that information needs to be out there i do think people uh and ideas will correct themselves over time uh i think that the alternatives to the marketplace of ideas uh are there are different theories that if this were a law class, we could go through and talk about how they work. But that's the approach that I view as most successful. And the Supreme Court has come in and said, these are the categories that are outside the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. The Supreme Court has already weighed in and decided what's protected speech and what's unprotected speech. And I would urge tech committees to use that because let's say I start I go post something completely false on Facebook about you two, okay? Guess mm -hmm. what? You can sue me. There is libel law. Or if you come to me and you share a secret and I violate that confidentiality, well, there's invasion of privacy. And there mm -hmm. are laws like FERPA where you can sue me and hold me accountable for what I did and I think that should be what we're looking at, understanding that the marketplace of ideas is going to put a lot of, lot of unfortunate speech out there. But I view that as more acceptable than trying to regulate speech. Yeah, I, I think I agree with you. It's tricky. It's like this is not – I don't have any of the answers. No. I, I, but I, and I think that I would rather – us be able to have the conversation about this issue <clears throat> than not have one at all or be stepping on glass shards trying to make sure that we don't say something that we're not allowed to say. Yeah, I think government efforts to restrict speech 
mostly happened during time of war, World War One, World War Two. Yeah, they did not work very well. They just didn't. And if you look at tech companies trying to limit speech, again, it has, at best, a modest effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it sets people up to believe, well, the tech companies are are supporting conservatives and restricting my speech or vice versa. And um, I think having the same rules for everybody across social media platform, I think Elon Musk, if the purchase of Twitter goes through and he does use a marketplace of ideas, you're going to have some controversial people back on Twitter. Yeah. You're going to have more misinformation out there but I think you're also going to have more accurate information out there. And I think correcting misinformation has value. Absolutely. I would agree. So you're in the camp of let's counter incorrect ideas with correct ideas. Yeah, that's a key part of marketplace of ideas. And I think also the Supreme Court has said these are the ideas that are outside the First Amendment, that I don't Mm -hmm. have the right to create a false ad. Right. I can't create an ad. Uh, let's say I have a car company saying I'll sell a car for 5000 when it's a $50,000 car. There's no right to false advertising. Right. Okay. So I think the Supreme Court has made clear what's covered and what's not covered. And I think social media platforms, if they make a mistake on something, because there are always content that's very close to the boundaries. Uh, Mm -hmm. covered not covered libelous not covered or not libelous private uh an invasion of privacy case not one so i think there are other ways to handle that and i i wish more speech were out there not less yeah i agree so you spent some time in the journalism industry what are some of the moments that you remember personally or that you researched that changed that industry forever? Uh, I would tell you my time as a journalist um, in Washington, D.C., working for U.S. Medicine was some of the most fun I ever had in my life. I was probably 23, 24 when I started at U.S. Medicine. I was a reporter later promoted to associate editor, and I got to cover some amazing stories. And when you're 23, 24, 25, 26, covering congressional hearings Mm -hmm. and seeing people, senators, uh, who you grew up watching on the evening news, uh, it was the most fun. I would have done that job for free. Mm -hmm. Uh, I went to work every day saying, wow, I get paid to do something I love. Some of the stories I covered for U.S. Medicine uh, that I look back on and say I did a pretty good job, I got to interview the White House medical team. So I got to go to the White House uh, and interview the medical team uh, that stayed close to the president. And I think it was President Reagan was the uh, president at the time. It might have been President Bush, but uh, got to do an interview with the White House medical team. And when you see a president on TV, a lot of people see the person next to him and say, that's Secret Service. It's often a physician who travels with the president all the time in case certain health things. 
So talking about and getting to report and interview people and, and uh, go over the role of the White House medical team was a story uh, that not a lot of people got to do, and I thought I did a pretty good job on it. Um, I was one of the journalists who helped break a story after the first Iraq war. Soldiers were coming back with unusual illnesses. Some of it was leishmaniasis, which is present in Iraq, but it's not present in the United States. So you had soldiers coming back from the Iraq war who had bizarre illnesses. And uh, it's kind of a funny story. The Pentagon was trying to cover up how many soldiers were sick and what mm -hmm. their symptoms were. And, but part of the federal government is when you hold a meeting, you're required to give public notice that we're having a meeting and here's the topic. Mm -hmm. I saw this meeting was being held. The Pentagon decided to make it as difficult as possible for me and other journalists to cover it. So they held the meeting on an island off the coast of Maryland. <laughs> so me and another journalist had to arrange to get a boat to go to this island to cover the story. And when we came back, uh, U.S. Medicine had coverage that uh, only one other, I think it was a magazine journalist, had. And it was about leishmaniasis. And it was about all the illnesses and how big the problem was. And I felt my story brought this issue uh, to national attention. Other journalists picked it up and ran with it and uh, did their own investigations. But that's a story that I was proud of because it would have been very easy for me to say the heck with it. I'm not um, getting on this boat. I'm not going out to this island. And you should have seen the boat that got us to the island. I was not happy about it because I can't swim. I never learned to swim growing up. And being on this small boat going to an island, I got to tell you, I was not happy <laughs> being there. Uh, but we got there, and uh, the conference was amazing. And the information that came out of it went to doctors. And I think I helped to make the lives of the soldiers who served in uh, the Iraq War better because uh, you now had attention you now had awareness of their symptoms, uh, and they knew where they could go for help. So that's a story that I look back on and say I really, really enjoyed it, and I felt good. It was a good example of the watchdog role of journalism that mm -hmm. uh, both of you remember from class. Uh, another story that I enjoyed working on was, have either of you seen the movie Outbreak? I don't think so. Okay, there's a movie called Outbreak which is based on a true story that I and others covered. Uh, over the last 10 years, have you heard of Ebola outbreaks? Yeah, okay. there was one in Brazil. Yeah, so there have been some Ebola outbreaks. <clears throat> well, Ebola was a, or is a virus that people still don't know where it comes from. What they mm -hmm. know is when you have an Ebola outbreak, your likelihood of dying is about 80 or 90% if you catch it. There's a pretty good chance you're going to die, and it's a gruesome death of uncontrolled bleeding. Mm -hmm. um, and Ebola virus was something that people were watching very, very carefully because if it came to the United States, 
and you have a virus that's spread fairly easily and 80 to 90 percent of people die oh my gosh yeah so early 1990s um there was a military research base outside of washington dc it was in reston virginia about 15 20 miles outside of washington and they thought they had Ebola virus in monkeys that were being used for biomedical research. Mm. And I got a tip, another journalist got a tip, and we wrote extensively about this because if you have Ebola virus near Washington, D.C., this could be something where thousands or even millions of people die. Yeah. So me uh, and another journalist, I think his name was Brett Blackledge, and he ended up winning an award for it, um, we were the two journalists who really broke the story and said, oh, my gosh, this is what's going on. And nobody at the time wanted to talk to me on the record. It was one of those stories that you had to develop through other sources because nobody wanted to go on and do an interview with the journalist and then be quoted because the military was trying to cover it up and it could end your mm. career if you did that. And I developed a lot of the information because there was a hearing at the National Institutes of Health on Ebola and what might happen. Uh, well, I went to this hearing and it just so happens there was a general who was talking to other people near me and it was one of those people who talks way louder than he should and I heard yeah. exactly what was going on there. And I knew he didn't want me to hear, but when you're at a open public meeting and you're talking really loud i don't view it as geez i have to move so i don't have to <laughs> yeah. hear this information yeah. i listen to what he said and that played a key role in me developing a story that was then widely reported and ended up on the evening news and washington post that there's a chance there's a bola virus in, near washington dc it turns out the virus was nearly identical but wasn't quite ebola so it was oh, yeah. very, very similar genetically. And while it killed the monkeys in the research lab, it had negligible, it had a very modest effect uh, in human beings. So I covered it, Brett Blackledge covered it, and someone got the idea, let's write a book about this. Let's write a book about Ebola in the United States. And then mm -hmm. they turned it into a movie. So this story that I covered and played a key role, ended up becoming a movie. And I always felt like an idiot that I wasn't the person who wrote the book, that I wasn't the person mm -hmm. who wrote the movie and made that money. But uh, that was that was a story that I look back on and said, you did a good job. So those were some of the stories I remember. My reporting days were from 1987 uh, to uh, 1995. So. Those are three stories that I think of looking back. Uh, they didn't. That was my follow-up question. They didn't ask you to be in this movie, did they? They did not. That they feels didn't a, ask Brett Blackledge to be in the movie either. But that feels a little disrespectful. Yeah, I'm frightened. That would have been that would have been cool to be in a movie. That would have uh, been. I'm frightened about who they might have had play me. <laughs> uh, you know, my uh, my my wife uh, probably would joke it would be Danny DeVito. But, uh, <laughs> Because I'm not the tallest guy in the world, but uh, kind of scary. Some people can view that as a compliment. Some yeah, people love Danny like, DeVito. Yeah. That'd be awesome. Yeah. If Danny DeVito played me in a movie, I'd be hyped. But, That's really cool. I'll have to check out that movie then, and then I can tell people, hey, the guy that broke that story was my professor freshman year. 
And I, I guess I had a question going back to the um, the I, the veterans coming back from from Iran with the Leishmaniasis. Did they did the Pentagon like were they told that this is what they had? When a war ends, like with Vietnam, and soldiers come home, when you are in a country with an environment very different from where you grew up, you're going to see unusual viruses. You're going to yeah. see unusual illnesses. And during the Vietnam War, the military was using a chemical called Agent Orange. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that was Vietnam has heavy vegetation. And if you drop Agent Orange, it kills trees and plants and uh, makes it easier for you to be able to see who the opponent is, who, mm -hmm. uh, who was from North Vietnam. The problem is when you're dropping Agent Orange and it's killing trees and vegetation, probably going to have an effect on the soldiers in the area. Yeah. And it's probably not something you want in your drinking water. So after Vietnam, soldiers came home. You had unexplained cancers. You had unexplained illnesses. Uh, and the military and later the VA looked at what it was and tried to come up with a plan to take care uh, of these veterans a and you had the same thing uh, with the Iraq war you had soldiers in a part of the world that most people don't go visit it's hotter it's drier they will have viruses that don't exist in Pittsburgh and mm -hmm. you have no immunity to these viruses you didn't grow up you weren't exposed to them when you were young you didn't develop antibodies to them so when you catch them it can be a pretty significant illness. Yeah. And one of them was leishmaniasis. Uh, and while it's not as fatal as Ebola, it's, it's still a serious illness. Mm -hmm. So when you deploy soldiers to Iraq and they spend six months, a year, two years there, and they come home, you're going to see all sorts of things that uh, you would not if they had not been deployed there. And that's what the Pentagon was struggling with. Um, they weren't ready for leishmaniasis. They weren't ready for some of the other illnesses that they came home with. And there were some soldiers in the military who were treating them who really insisted that this conference be held mm -hmm. and that there be an open discussion about it so the military would be prepared to treat them while they were on active duty. And then the VA would be ready to treat them when they left the military. That's, yeah, that's that's obviously a problem you run into, I guess, with all those soldiers coming back. Um, that's pretty. That's some pretty interesting stuff right there. Um, being in a position of leadership, um, what do you think is required to be a good leader, and how can good leaders rise to the top in a time when bad actors seem so common? Yeah, I have been fortunate enough my first faculty job was at temple university in 2000 i was head of the news editorial program there uh, i only stayed two years at temple because my oldest son dominic uh, had a heart condition and they thought he might need open heart surgery so i moved back to western pennsylvania mm -hmm. and returned to iup and was eventually promoted to the program director there and then uh, got really brave, moved south, went to Birmingham, Alabama, where I spent 14 years 
as chair of journalism and mass communication. Uh, I tell my Pittsburgh Steeler fans I had Duck Hodges in class at Sanford when he was uh, uh, wow. uh, the quarterback there, and I watched him do some drills in practice and it was pretty impressive. Uh, Duck Hodges is the most accurate quarterback I have ever seen in my life. Uh, he would be at the 10 yard line. He would throw a jump ball into a barrel at the back of the end zone and he would hit it nine times out of 10. And wow. like the one time he missed, it would hit off the top of it. If I were throwing that and I hit the barrel one time, I would be the happiest <laughs> yeah, individual I would too. in the world. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've been lucky since I've been in higher education, and then I became dean of the School of Communication at Point Park uh, in 2020, and I've been in the role about uh, two years and four months. I've been fortunate. I've been in leadership roles uh, since the year 2000, and as a leader, uh, I think a few concepts are important. I think trying to treat students, not how you want to be treated, but how you want your kids to be treated is very, very important. Mm -hmm. And when school of communication kids come to me, I really try to think of if this were Dominic, if this were Luke, what would I uh, want to happen? And I try to treat the communication uh, students as fairly. I try to be responsive to them. Um, I also try to listen to their ideas. Where do they want the School of Communication? We're creating a student advisory board uh, this month. It's something I've wanted to do, but I had to put on hold because of COVID. And I want to get together with communication students every month, have coffee and donuts, and hear about what do you like, what do you dislike, where do you want the school to go in the future? Um, I think uh, in my roles, I've had to manage staff members uh, as well, an administrative assistant. And uh, I always try to treat that person with respect and kindness uh, and to realize the incredibly important role uh, administrative assistants play. Uh, I've been uh, fortunate enough that uh, at uh, Sanford University when I was there, I had Karen Ryan as my administrative assistant. Uh, when I started at Point Park, I had Nan Knapp, and now I have uh, Tara Myers. And they are all phenomenal people, phenomenal colleagues who made the programs work well. Uh, I try to invest uh, in the people who work with me. Um, I'll talk to them about going to graduate school or continuing education. Uh, or if they need a reference down the road where they're considering another job that might work better. Um, faculty um, at Point Park, one of the things is as a unionized faculty, I have more the power of persuasion. Uh, my boys, Dominic and Luke, joke that a dean really doesn't work. I just yell at other people to <laughs> do work and everybody has to listen to me as if I'm king. That is not true for a dean of a unionized faculty. Um, if I want faculty to work on something, I have to convince them. I have to persuade them. I have to get them buy-in because under the CBA, they're allowed to say, no, I don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. Now, um, I think good leaders are open. They give a vision. They treat people fairly. Uh, they treat people consistently. 
Uh, and I think if you do that, you can accomplish a lot of things. When I started at the School of Communication, we didn't have a sports communication program. Mm -hmm. This fall, it was our biggest program for incoming students. We had 19 incoming kids in the first year of the program. In a few years, sports communication is probably going to be our biggest or second biggest programs. One of the neat things about it is I am getting kids to apply to this program from Alabama and Florida and Georgia and California and New England. States where kids don't historically come to Point Park are seeing our program and saying that's pretty neat. We structured the program in a way where your first two years you get to do sports broadcasting, sports video, sports photo, podcasting with Kevin Taylor and Point Park Athletics. Mm -hmm. During your junior year, you have a chance to work for University of Pittsburgh and ACC conference through a collaboration we have. And then in, during your senior year, we want you doing internships with our alumni and friends with the Pirates, Steelers, and Penguins. That's a pretty cool program. Yeah, that's awesome. And we're excited to see the prospective students are applying for it. And just last week, I got an email. One of our first sports communication kids just got a phenomenal internship with the Penguins. That's pretty awesome. One of the kids in your class, actually, just got an internship with the Penguins uh, in photojournalism. And uh, so that's an area where I think I help bring the faculty together to say, we are in Pittsburgh. We can walk to PNC. We can walk uh, to professional sports. We need to have mm -hmm. a sports communication program. And I think the faculty bought into the vision I gave them. Um, another thing we did was about five years ago, a decision was made to merge broadcasting and photo and print journalism. Mm -hmm. And I got to be honest, I don't like it. Okay. So I got rid mm -hmm. of it. Uh, and here's why. Broadcasting was always one of Point Park's most popular majors. And if you look in Pittsburgh, Brig Brown of the Pirates, guess what he was at Point Park. If you look at Bob Pompiani, KDKA, guess what program he was at at Point Park. Mm -hmm. One of our most successful programs was always broadcasting. And I think when you put it into a catch-all title, journalism, you lose the history the tradition, the name recognition of broadcasting. So we brought it back as a standalone program and it has a production track and it has an on-air reporting track. And it was right up there with sports communication this year. Uh, it was like 1920 as well. So a lot of interest. And again, it brought kids to Point Park from non-traditional areas, areas outside of Pennsylvania, uh, areas far away from the Pittsburgh region. We also updated every single program with the exception of graphic design since I've been Dean. Graphic design's a fairly new program, so it didn't need to be updated, but journalism became digital journalism. Mm -hmm. Really, really solid. Tracks in reporting and writing and tracks in photo. Uh, we added a multimedia uh, update. The new multimedia program at Point Park is uh, in my opinion, a hidden gem. As part mm. of this program, you learn how to code and build a professional website. So there's a production side to it. Mm -hmm. The other side is you learn how to generate all the content for a professional website. 
mm-hmm. who thinks those skills are going to lead to jobs and making a lot of money yeah okay those would so uh public relations and advertising became public relations advertising and social media uh back to our discussion early about the importance of social media the importance of social media for businesses and nonprofits and professional sports so we updated every single program as part of that update our programs became a little smaller mm-hmm. point park majors used to be 60 65 credits we brought them down to about 50 so what it does is allows you to get a minor allows you to get two minors allows you to mm-hmm. get a double major and to still graduate mm-hmm. in four years because i want every one of our point park communication kids to leave employable in about three or four different areas well maybe you want to do sports communication for the Steelers maybe your plan B is working at KDKA and working in sports broadcasting maybe your plan C is working in video production but I want you to have three or four options and with our smaller majors we're now in line with accrediting standards ACE JMC is our accrediting body our programs are now 99% uh, in compliance with national accrediting standards, which is a huge development. The programs have been updated. They give kids a lot more uh, flexibility. So the faculty and I working together to update programs, um, I think, was really, really uh, important. How you do that as dean is you convince people. You, mm-hmm. I have to convince current students that these changes are valuable I have to convince prospective students I have to convince parents but I also have to convince the faculty and we've had enormous buy-in the year I started we had 90 incoming students Uh, the last two years we had 96 97 so we're starting to see modest gains in our programs Mm -hmm. and Um, I feel very confident we're going to be over 100 next fall. And to me, why that's a pretty good accomplishment for the School of Communication. Last weekend, I went to IUP. They had a journalism dinner. When I was at IUP in 2006, we had 259 kids. The program was closed down two years ago with 35, 40 kids. Mm -hmm. Other journalism programs are declining. Other communication programs are declining. Really? Our programs are increasing, and I think that's very good news for Point Park. Why do you think those other journalism programs are are not doing so well? Well, there are a couple things at play. In Pittsburgh, the issue, and part of the reason for IUP's program being shut down is this. I went to Ligonier High School. When I graduated from Ligonier, you had about 200 kids. Mm -hmm. Ligonier High School today has about 90 kids. So if you look at Latrobe and Greensburg and Indiana, all these towns are graduating many fewer kids than they were 10, 20, 40 years ago. So they'll talk about the demographic shift. In Pennsylvania, the demographics in Western PA aren't very good now. So what it means is I have to recruit in central Pennsylvania, in eastern Pennsylvania, and in other states, and that's what we're doing. Um, We've done it uh, in my two years and three months as dean. We've done a pretty good job. We can do better, and I'm trying to recruit in other areas. It just takes a while to build up to do that, but that's what hurt IUP. That's what hurt Edinburgh. That's what hurt California. That's pretty cool. I didn't actually know all that. That's a that's an that's an information drop for 
Point Park students. So I, I think we we have a couple of uh, more uh, personalized questions at the end. I guess that I think were kind of fun. Um, what is what is one random act of kindness that you were once shown that you'll never forget? Uh, that uh, is such a difficult question. It is that <laughs> I don't believe I've been asked before. <laughs> So I'm probably going to take a minute and stall because my mind is <laughs> scrambling right now. I didn't mean to put you on the spot. No, but I, I love I... <laughs> the question. And one of the things, whenever I'm interviewed, I never ask for questions. Because when someone gives you a question up front, you think about it, you prepare. Yeah. And your answers end up so scripted. So I love the questions that you've asked me today at different parts of my life and uh, different uh, parts uh, of our job. I think the kindness that I look back on, um, go back to 2015, it was an awful time in my life. And what happened was this, uh, I had been misdiagnosed. Uh, I had been told I had a REM sleep disorder, mm -hmm. that when I went to sleep at night, I would jerk my arms and legs. And if you have a REM sleep disorder, the end result isn't very good. Many, many of those people go on to develop Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. uh, and you've probably seen Parkinson's because of Michael J. Fox. Yeah. Back to the future fame as his health has declined. So significantly, that's a diagnosis I got. And sometimes when you talk to doctors, things just don't fit. Yeah. And it just didn't fit because I was playing softball, I'm a pretty active guy, and I would expect that as I got older with the REM sleep disorder that I would progress to Parkinson's. And I talked to my doctor, and the doctor said that, well, all you patients think you're gonna be Michael J. Fox, and it's gonna be dramatic, it's gonna be a slower decline for you but in the back of my mind I didn't believe I had that and yeah uh, but my doctor was insistent on it and we moved forward in December of 2014 the pharmacy made a mistake with my prescription and gave me the wrong dose and uh, what they did was they ended up accidentally doubling the dose Oh, gosh. And when I discovered it, I went to CVS. They said, go to the ER, tell them what happened, have them call us, and they will come up with a plan to wean you off it. Un what did they prescribe you, if you don't mind me asking? Um, it was an anti-seizure okay. uh, medication. Okay to stop the shaking at night. So I was on an anti-seizure, just like if you have friends who are epileptic, an anti-seizure mm -hmm. medication. Um, well, they doubled the dose of it, and I went to the ER, and unfortunately, the hospital I went to weaned me off the medication way too fast. Mm. And when I came off an anti-seizure medication too fast, guess what happened? You had seizures. seizures yeah. And I had violent seizures, I had moderate seizures, I had small seizures. The most dramatic one I remember at the hospital, I was eating lunch and I started to seize violently. And the last thing I remember hearing was, we can't protect his airway. 
and that's what I remember. And I woke up in a CAT scan where they were looking to see if I had suffered brain damage. Jeez. After uh, I went in and out of the hospital three or four times over the next month, but the seizures had caused, caused massive brain damage. And um, I might tear up on you guys as I talk about this. It's okay. I was referred to a dementia clinic at UAB. Mm -hmm. And the seizures had caused so much brain damage that I got the following diagnosis. Your brain is now functioning as a 75 or 80-year-old with dementia. And my IQ went from 138 points down to 98 points. So I went to, I was irritatingly close to being a genius level. Yeah. And my wife beats me in IQ tests all the time and it irritates me. And it <laughs> irritates me that I could be that close to te testing to 140, getting to that genius yeah. level to 98, which is an average. I failed every short-term memory test that they gave me. And the dementia doctor said, in two years, we'll understand the extent of your brain damage, and maybe you can go back to work. Wow. Bleak. Yeah. I went home, and I had a conversation with my wife, Wendy. And she said, no. She said, no, that's not what's going to happen. I'm sorry, guys. Don't apologize. Um, she goes, you are the most stubborn, competitive individual I know. Mm -hmm. She goes, if anybody can overcome this, you can. For the next three months, I did physical therapy, speech therapy, occupational therapy, 16 hours a day. Wow. It took me one week to start passing memory tests. It took me two weeks to start passing them on a regular basis. Uh, my weight had fallen to 130 pounds and things like throwing a baseball, throwing a football, my muscle memory was shot. So I used all of that summer to rebuild that. And I went to see uh, the neurologist in August and he said, I can't believe it. He goes, you you are not 100%. Your IQ has gone from 138 to 130. And he goes, you passed the memory test, but you didn't get them perfectly. He goes, I wish you'd take another semester off. But he said, this recovery is unbelievable. The acts of kindness from friends and family, but my former students at Sanford were just remarkable. And they played a key role. I mean, they would see me and they would just hug me. And um, that's one of those parts where your community of friends and family and people you go to church with and people involved in youth sports and things like that, uh, their support for me while I recovered from this was just unbelievable. Um, two weeks so it took me two weeks to start passing the memory tests. Mm -hmm. And I went and I decided I'm going to give one of my lectures from Median Society. And I couldn't pronounce three and four syllable words. So I had to redo my lectures so I could actually pronounce the words. 
mm-hmm. uh, that I was giving, I had so much. You can't imagine yeah. how much brain damage was done and the work it took me to get back. And I got to tell you, you realize when something like this happens, how many friends you have and the people who would just come up and hug me and high five me uh, and just send me emails and just send me texts. Uh, was just unbelievable. Those are the random acts of kindness that I remember because sometimes when you go through something so traumatic, you kind of start to focus on what's important and what's not important, but you also look at the people in your lives, who are your true friends, who are the people when you're in a bad spot you can rely on. So I learned a lot from it. Don't wish it had never happened, but I can tell you it made me tougher. You set the bar incredibly high for the answer to that question. Yeah. So to the future guests, that that's the answer that we got. That's that's an incredible that's an incredible story. So so they misdiagnosed you did not have the REM Yeah, and I, so after I got out of the hospital, I was kind of an irritated person and I fired all my doctors <laughs> and got new ones because um and so I hired a new primary care doctor. I hired a uh, new sleep doctor and went and had a sleep study done. And they're like, you had mild sleep apnea uh, <laughs> and you were just completely misdiagnosed. <clears throat> and they, they got you sorted out after that? Yeah. So I was on an anti-seizure medication for, I don't know, 10, 15 years that I didn't need to be on it. I don't have a REM wow. sleep disorder. Um uh, I don't have a condition that's going to lead to Parkinson's. I have a little bit of sleep apnea that I'll wake up in a night night sometimes every now and again. But, yeah, it would, had been a misdiagnosis, and I'd been put on a medication uh, that I didn't need to be on that actually was making the sleep apnea worse. Uh, and then um, you have the uh, pharmacy making a mistake with it. So... Uh, an awful lot of really bad decisions by the medical community convinced me I needed to have new doctors, and I was thrilled with my new doctors because they uh, did a very good job in getting me back to health and then making sure what, if I was being treated for something, I actually had it. Wow. That's, that's, that's one hell of a journey so. right there. Um. What are you most afraid of? Um, me personally, I got to tell you, I'm not a person who spends much time worrying about myself. It's just mm-hmm. not my personality. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I'm wa- as dean, I'll end up working six, seven a lot of times. And my wife's like, oh, my gosh, you know, you're going to get mugged walking to Mon Warp. Uh, I don't worry about those kind of things uh, at all. Um, I worry about my kids and families and students an awful lot. Um, This week, I'm worrying about my son, Luke. Um, My son, Luke, uh, is a student athlete who has a pretty good chance of wrestling a college. Mm -hmm. And Luke was born with a genetic condition where his kneecap is not a genetic condition, but he was born with a kneecap that's too small. Mm. And he would have pain in his knee 
and was being followed by an orthopedist, Dr. Bradley, the Steelers orthopedist that you'll see during games. Mm-hmm. And what Dr. Bradley told us was Luke's kneecap is too small and it makes his knee unstable. Mm. And we knew eventually Luke was going to need surgery, but we wanted him to be done growing. Right. Because when you operate with on a knee, it can cause issues with growth plate and you can yeah. end up with one leg an inch <coughs> shorter than another. So mm-hmm. it was one of those things that we kept uh, thinking it's going to be another month, it's going to be another year, it's going to be two years. Well, uh, Luke's getting ready for the fall 2020 wrestling season at Franklin Regional. And we just decided, you know what, before the season, let's get his knee checked out. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Bradley said, Luke needs knee surgery that last year because of the knee instability he had been thrown on his knee and it tore ligaments and he wrestled through it and he went through off-season practice and he lifted but he said it's progressed to the point where I think we should operate and Luke is kind of stubborn like his dad to be honest Luke was going to put off knee surgery until the end of the year because he's worked really hard uh, and I think he's going to have a good season Uh, and he wanted to wrestle but we had a second opinion and uh, the second opinion said Luke needs knee surgery and it needs to be done now because it's going to be made worse and you don't want him in 5, 10, 15 years having chronic pain because he waited three or four months so next Friday Luke's going to undergo knee surgery and I worry that during the operation that, you know, will things go well in his recovery and he's going to be in yeah. a lot of pain and you don't like to see your kids no. uh, in pain. No. Uh, my oldest boy, Dominic. Uh, Dominic uh, had the Chiari brain malformation surgery. And I don't know if either of you are familiar with it, but they take mm-hmm. part of your skull off and they draw off part of your vertebrae. It's about as brutal an operation and the reason it happens is your brain's too big for your skull so oh. they have to release that pressure uh, as it grows so Dominic has um, follow-up neurologist neurosurgery appointments every year every couple years and I worry that Dom may need another uh, operation and I think the last thing I worry about is, uh, and I don't talk about my daughter Adrian as much. The reason for that is she's special needs, and sometimes people say unfortunate things uh, about special mm-hmm. needs uh, kids. Uh, and um, I think over the years, to protect myself and to keep me from getting fired up, I don't talk as a- about Adrian as much. Mm-hmm. But she's 17 and she functions a bit about the level of a two-year-old. And Adrian's going to have a hard life. And uh, I think her mother and I worry about when we're gone, you know, what will happen to Adrian. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, it's, um, it's, you know, having, uh, obviously I don't know because I don't have kids. I don't like have a family of my own, but that's. It makes your world a lot smaller, from what I've heard. Uh, yeah. It does, and it's a phenomenal role to be dad. Mm-hmm. And I have three great kids. Dominic's a WNJ. He's an accounting student. Dominic uh, grew up on Sanford's campus, 
Uh, he was six years old when I started at Sanford, and uh, journalism and mass communication was one of the biggest departments, and I was one of the better known professors and department chairs. And every time Dom Dominic went to campus, hey Dom, hey Dom, hey Dom, <laughs> everybody on campus knew him because he was my son and everybody knew me. When he went to visit Sanford, the admissions counselors were pretending they didn't know me, even <laughs> though they did, because Dominic just wanted to go to school at a place where no one knew his dad. He wanted to right. go and be Dom Ankney and not be Bernie's kid, Dominic. Right. Mm -hmm. So when we came up to Point Park, he visited, he really liked it, but he decided to go visit WJ and Westminster as well. And he had a great visit to WJ and he decided to go there and Dom came to me and he goes, uh, you know why I chose W and J? And I said, no, and he's like, no one on that whole campus has any clue who you are. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, Dominic, I have good news for you. I said, the president of W&J is one of my friends from Sanford <laughs> when we worked there. And he and I talked that if you went there, we were going to set up a dinner. So you are prepared to go meet uh, the president of W&J <laughs> in two weeks. And I think Dom wanted to uh, smack me. Uh, <laughs> Uh, after, after that, but uh, Dom's a good kid. Luke's a good kid. Luke, uh, Luke gets an awful lot of my competitiveness. I was a decent athlete for being a small kid. I'm five eight. When I was mm -hmm. growing up in high school, I weighed one thirty. When I was college, at one forty five. I mean, so I was a decent baseball player, but I was not going to be making minor league baseball. And for me to compete with kids like. I played against kids who played baseball for Point Park. Well, for me to compete against those kids, I have to outthink them, out hustle them because yeah. they have athletic skills I don't. Mm -hmm. Luke is going to be six feet and is just a phenomenal athlete. He has mm -hmm. height and strength that I look at, and facially, he looks just like me. But uh, Luke has athletic ability. My wife, Wendy, uh, her uncles are all six feet. And he got some height from the Delises, and I'm glad for him because he's that yeah. strong kid you look at at six feet with 8% body fat. Wow. Uh, and at, when uh, he was going to Dorseyville Middle School, he just decided to go out for track as the heck for the heck of it. It was the end of the season, something to keep him busy. And he yeah. has a Dorseyville Middle School track record. He'd gone out for track for a few weeks. <laughs> And he's setting a school record. He just has athletic ability. I used to race my kids until a couple years ago. Uh, Luke took me down in a 40-yard dash. For being an old guy, I, could, I still had a little bit of quickness, but Luke took me down, and I refused to race anymore. That was brutal. <laughs> and if I do race him, it'll be 20 yards because I'm still a little quicker than he is. But he has those long legs, and once he gets them moving, it's pretty. Yeah, it's pretty bad news for me. <laughs> he's got to he's got to get up to speed first. Yeah. So watching my kids succeed, grow up, mature, uh, become adults, and uh, Adrian's a special kid. She has a small world and a limited world, but she loves her big brothers. She loves spending time with the family. Mm -hmm. uh, so I have an awful lot of time, awful lot of fun, and enjoy that role too much. That's great.
What advice do you have for young people, um, students that are just starting college, students that want to be in a position of leadership, students who want to be journalists? What advice do you have for them? I think the most important thing in 2022 is this. Number one, if you are a first-year kid at Point Park this fall, advice the first piece of advice i would tell you is this get involved with student media your first semester as you remember i nagged both of you get involved with student media and last year with COVID, it was a little trickier but this year um we have record number of kids working for the globe and uview and wppj get involved from day one because you may have spent your whole life thinking i know i want to go into broadcast journalism I want you to confirm that between Mm -hmm. my junior and senior year I did an internship and at this point in life I always viewed my career as I'm going to go work at a newspaper I'm going to be a sports journalist after I did that internship it's not that I dislike my internship it's that I despised it And right. I'm like, I cannot do this. So go home. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I have three years into this degree and I don't want to do this. And I have these student loans. Woe is me. Mm-hmm. And thought about it, thought about it, thought about it. During my senior year, I decided instead of working at a newspaper, I want to work at a magazine. And instead of working at a local newspaper, I wanted to focus on medicine and science and technology. And I love the stories that I discovered. So I don't want you to be me between your junior and senior year having that, oh my gosh, what did I get myself into? So the advice I give you is number one in your first semester, get involved with our student media. Mm -hmm. You may find out you don't like what you always planned on. And you may find out you like something different, okay? it's much, much better to find that out at 18 instead of 21 or 22. Yeah. Um, and so that's the first thing. I think the second thing is what I mentioned before. I want you, when you finish our program, to be employable in about three or four different areas. So maybe you major in sports comp. Maybe you minor in broadcast. Maybe you have a second minor in business. By doing that, you have three or four career paths that you feel confident if that plan A doesn't work, then you move on to plan B. You've thought about it, you feel comfortable, and that's what you're going to do. I see too many kids think, I'm gonna go to college, I'm going to get this degree, and this is where I'm going to work. If that plan A doesn't work out, what are you gonna do? A former student of mine, and I wanna be careful, I don't give too much information, but a former student of mine she came to college her plan was get a journalism degree go back to my hometown work at the local newspaper and be close to cousins aunts and uncles Mm -hmm. it didn't work out that student had no plan b the plan b ended up being living with mom and dad for a couple extra years while she figured out where she wanted to go in life Mm -hmm. and eventually went to graduate school in something very different so I want you to be involved with Point Park student media for four years mm-hmm. because you can figure out what you like, what you dislike, what you're best at. But by being involved in student media for four years, you're going to get a very strong portfolio. Mm-hmm. Number two, I want you to have a major. I want you to have a minor. I want you to have two minors. Educationally, that prepares you for a lot of different areas. 
Number three, I want you to do at least three internships by the time you graduate. One after your sophomore year, one after your junior year, third one during your senior year. If you work for Point Park Student Media for four years and you do three internships, you are going to look like you have two years experience. Mm -hmm. That is why Point Park kids graduate and get jobs right away because they have portfolios. When I was at IUP and I loved Indiana, Pennsylvania, I'm a small town kid and I like being able to walk and see the Jimmy Stewart statue five minutes from my office. It was Mm kind of neat. But if you're in Indiana, PA, one radio station, no TV station, one small town newspaper, you don't have the opportunities that you do in Pittsburgh where you can walk to about 100 internships. You can get a bus Mm -hmm. to about 500 interns. You just have internships and part-time jobs and jobs after graduation that never ever can exist uh, in smaller towns. So my advice is get involved with student media, stay involved for four years, do three internships, do a major, have a minor, have a couple minors. If you do that, you have set yourself up for success in a lot of different areas. Mm -hmm. Don't limit yourself to one thing. Professor, thank you for sitting down talking with us today. That was great. I had a lot of fun. Uh, I know you're busy, so I appreciate you taking time out of your schedule. Anytime. I I am thrilled to have been asked. I am thrilled uh, to have spent the last hour and a half with both of you. Uh, And I appreciate the questions. And uh, you can edit out the part of my hospitalization and me tearing up a little bit because I'll feel (laughs) feel foolish about that. But uh, I am joking about that. Use what you want. But uh, it has been my pleasure. It's been our pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you. Anytime. Bye, everybody.